Welcome to Book Bistro, where book enthusiasts come to chat about the books they love in a warm and supportive environment. episode is airing on Tuesday, September 21st, 2021. Hey everybody, it's Shannon and I am here to chat with you of course about new books. But before we do that, I have an interview that will appeal to those of you who love historical fiction, especially historical fiction dealing with writers. So today I'm sharing an interview that I did with Amy Belding Brown, and we are talking about her novel, Emily's House, which is a novel that's written from the perspective of Emily Dickinson's longtime maid. So if you are a Dickinson fan or if you're intrigued by the idea of, you know, learning something new about a writer who we only know certain things about, at least, you know, things were taught in school, um, this interview should be of interest to you. So... Let's get right into the housekeeping information, and then we will move directly into my interview with Amy Belding-Brown. You can find us on Twitter and on Facebook by searching Book Bistro Podcast. You can always post just on the Book Bistro timeline. Some of you have done that. I'm always so happy to see when you've published posts there. You can join our Facebook listener group where you can chat with us as well as with other podcast listeners. You can keep an eye on some of what we're reading. We usually update you each Wednesday with a look at our current reads. If you'd like to get a hold of us and social media is not really your thing, you can email us. That address is thebookbistropodcast at gmail.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Book Bistro podcast. This is Shannon, and today I am delighted to be speaking with author Amy Belding-Brown about her latest novel, Emily's House, which will be releasing in the U.S. on August 3rd. Amy, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity. It's wonderful. You are very welcome. So I always like to start out by having authors give listeners a bit of an introduction to the book in question. So can you tell us a little bit about Emily's House and what readers can expect? Well, Emily's House um, focuses on Emily Dickinson's world uh, in the last 17 years of her life. Um, so in her reclusive period, and um, it's told through the point of view of Margaret Marr, who was her maid and housekeeper, the sort of the maid of all work um, for the Dickinsons at that time. And um, the fat and what particularly drew me to the novel to write the novel to begin with, uh, to focus it that way, was because I discovered um, that Margaret had actually been asked by Emily to burn her poems when Emily died. And Margaret didn't do that. So um, that struck me as quite a remarkable thing. And really that it's thanks to her that we even have these poems available to us. So to read in this day. Um, so that's 
very <laughs> that's a very shortened version of what the book is about. Okay, so we are seeing then the sort of the focus of the novel through the eyes of her maid and I guess kind of looking at just the amazing impact that Dickinson's work has had on the literary world. Um, what sort of drew you to the idea of writing about Emily Dickinson like herself rather than, I don't know, like another poet that has influenced the world? Like, is there something particular that draws you to Dickinson's work? Yeah, I mean, I grew up, many of us grew up um, reading her poetry. Uh, and I remember the early, you know, when you're a child, sometimes you read some of the nature poems. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> which are kind of accessible. And then you get older and you go to high school and college and you read some of the more challenging ones. But she's she's been long, she's been regarded, I shouldn't say long, but she's been, re she's kind of now regarded as the, uh, possibly the greatest American poet ever, um, which is a remarkable thing for a woman, especially in her Indeed. Time. And um, so that's one thing. Um, there are also a bunch of influences in my personal life. My, um, I actually learned several, quite some time ago, that I'm um, related to Emily Dickinson. So I'm Whoa. like... Uh, something like six cousins four times removed or something like that I can't remember it's it's very it's very <laughs> uh, it's very distant um, but we share an ancestor um, and that's probably because both of us um, grew you know have roots deep roots in New England in the Massachusetts uh, New England area um, that go way back to you know the very earliest days of the Europeans of the of the English coming to Massachusetts so, um, and that if you, and I've found actually that a lot of times, a lot of people, when they trace their roots back there, um, are kind of very distantly related to each other. So, not so that would make sense <laughs> if we think about, you know, sort of the number of people who right. originally came, you know, if you look back, I suppose you would sort of expect that, you know, there's not a huge variety in the, the whole like family right. tree when you go back um, beyond a certain point. Right, but of course they've spread all over the country since. So yes. All over the place. But, um, but anyways, and that's one thing. Another thing is I have an aunt, in fact, I dedicated the book to her, um, who was very influential in sort of mentoring me as a writer quite young, when I was quite young and interested in it. And she was a huge fan of Emily Dickinson. So whenever I um, go to visit her, she would inevitably quote something from Emily Dickinson and she was a poet herself, but, you know, really admired Dickinson. And so uh, that's another thing. Another thing was uh, my grandmother, my grandmother, uh, my father's mother um, grew, uh, lived in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is where my father grew up. And, uh -huh. and so when we visited her and we did fairly often, sometimes we'd go to Amherst because that was my, Amherst College is my father's alma mater. So at a quite a young age, I became somewhat familiar with the town, but I never visited the Emily Dickinson house until I was an adult. At that time, actually, when I was a child, it, it wasn't really open to the public. I guess you could get reservations and have, you know, an arranged 
uh, tour because but it was being lived in by faculty housing I think at that point ah okay so you couldn't just like go there no. in the way that now, you can now now you now you can't because of COVID but I think well, they're right. open again next year in 2022 um, and so since since it's been open as a museum um, you know I visited several times and especially when I decided to write this novel I, I visited a lot and I walked all around Amherst and um, but it was somewhat familiar to me, sort of familiar territory, um, and and I suppose comfortable in that way. But and I remember my parents pointing out the house at that time. It, they've they've renovated it now, so it looks more like it did in Emily's time. But at that time, it was red brick, and behind these these trees, you couldn't see it very well. Sort of mysterious. Um, but I didn't know much about Emily Dickinson, and she's come into prominence really since the 50s and and even more lately she's become pretty important now so I feel like when I was in college I I read some Dickinson I took a, a women in literature class and studied her you know a little bit unfortunately for me poetry has never been <clears throat> something that I, I have been drawn to as much as I am to like novels um, and so my, my knowledge of poetry, you know, is, is pretty sparse, basically just sort of limited to what I've, I've read in school and kind of a few things that I've stumbled upon here and there. But I think that getting to know through fiction a bit about the lives of, of women in history, be they novelists or poets or artists, I think is so important because we, we miss a big chunk of that just in, in our own personal reading. You know, I wouldn't know about Emily Dickinson so much at all if I didn't read a lot of sort of historical fiction that kind of points to her and references the work that she did years ago. Yeah, yeah. And I also think she's kind of mysterious even now and there's different interpretations of her. Um, and I, my, my theory is that she... She kind of liked that. She kind of liked the idea of being mysterious and, and a little bit hard to understand. And she kind of, uh, like one of the things when I was reading her letters, um, she would kind of put on a persona. It depended on who she was writing to. So mm -hmm. some of the letters are very different um, depending on who her audience is. I mean, to a certain extent, we all do that, but this is really striking. Like her letters to her cousins are just like almost anybody would, would write. And some of the letters to people are almost like poems themselves. So, so when you were deciding um, to write this book, what did your research look like in terms of not only getting to know sort of who Dickinson was as a person, but also who, who Margaret was? Yeah, um, well, I, I, my first thought was I was going to write about Emily Dickinson. <laughs> I had what I had... Uh, big dreams that I was going to uncover the truth about Emily Dickinson, which now ah. it's funny. It did. I could <laughs> really do that, but that was my, you know, I mean, it, when you start a novel, I think you have to have big dreams to kind of push you through the whole, because it's a lot of work. Sure. Um, but I love the research part. So what I do in it with any book and with this one too, is first I get my hands on everything. Uh, first I got my hands on everything I could find both online and in book form um, at, on at everything, you know, on Emily Dickinson. 
My aunt was a help too, because she had done, she'd done her own research on Emily Dickinson for her own just curiosity. Um, so, so I did that, I started with that. And uh, after a while I, um, and then in the process of doing that, I read the book Made as Muse by, I'm not sure I'm gonna say her name right, Athel Murray. I'm probably gonna mm -hmm. say her name right. Um, Cause though I love the Irish, <laughs> I loved playing with Margaret's voice. I don't have the Irish in me myself. So. Ah, yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, the, uh, and that really struck me as really interesting. That's where I learned about Margaret and her, um, the, her role in preserving the poems and just how, what an incredible person she was in her own right. Very interesting. Um, and also about Emily's um, interest in her and how she portrayed her. So that was sort of the beginning of why, of how I um, latched on to Margaret. So then I started doing the research again that Murray's book was a tremendous help um, in trying, in sort of guiding me to where to look. And I did a lot of research in, about Ireland at the time that, um, that Margaret grew up there. She was, she moved to this, she emigrated in when she was about 14. So she was a girl, but she had lived through as a young child, she lived through the potato famine mm -hmm. um, and, her, and her father had a big farm there and uh, he didn't have it, I'm sorry, he was a tenant. He was, ah. um, that's how it worked. And right. the, the landlord um, was selling, sold the estate and he was forced off. And at that point, his children, his living children all moved to um, Massachusetts as a, as a small group. And I think at some later time, and I could never find out exactly when this was, but some later time, the parents came over as far as I know. So anyways, I researched that sort of thing. I tried to get a sense of the, Irish, um, I've discovered a, the tremendous Irish impact on American culture, which I guess, ah, yes. you know, I, some of these things, I just, I ran into things that I just thought they were American, you know, <laughs> well, yeah, but they have Irish roots, and, and it's so how, what a huge difference it's made, um, so I learned, a, I learned a tremendous amount, and I love that, and then um, I started playing with with writing the book. I mean, I did different versions. I take a long time to write a book and I do many drafts. But one of the early drafts, I, I started with Margaret's. I did it just linearly and I started with Margaret uh, just before she immigrated. <laughs> and I wrote chapters and chapters of her experience of emigrating. And none of that really ah, came the book. Right. But I think it informs me in my sense of building a character to know sort of in a gut level what she or at least I think I know what she experienced as she um as she you know in her childhood that makes a difference on obviously on adults and how we are as people what we have to go through to get there so was it difficult for you to kind of find Margaret's voice and really sort of develop who she might have been as a person um, you know, I feel like you can read a lot of things and sort of understand what someone might have experienced, but how does that translate to then actually creating the character on the page and having her sort of communicate her, her possible story? Yeah, I, well, Emily's few comments, is not too many, but 
her few comments in her letters about Margaret. She called her Maggie, and um, and that's how she kind of goes. The book is has her in it. Um, has that name uses that quite a lot. Um, she she talked about her as being noisy and like the north wind and um, <laughs> sort of a disruptive influence in the family. I mean, she clearly had great affection for her, but there there was that and. And I think she also said, um, wild and warm and mighty, which kind of encapsulates that. Those kinds of little clues, but they gave me a real sense of, of who this woman was, um, along with other things that had happened to her and what she did in her life, um, like having a boarding house later, um, later in her life and running a boarding house and um, wanting to go to California to be with her brothers. And all those are facts. Um, so there's lots of things, and I put it together, and in in a sense, she, you know, I take pieces and construct it. What was interesting was when I started writing from her point of view in Mar Margaret's voice, it felt like it just came. <laughs> I I immerse myself in in Irish literature of the time, and you know, I watched Irish um, speaking things in not in Irish, not in the the Gaelic language, but in the American or the English Irish tongue and just did a lot. I just immersed myself. So it just kind of came, you know, if I weren't, if I were a little more superstitious, I would say I channeled her, but that's, that's I have... how it felt. But... <laughs> so how long did it actually take you then from the time that you decided that this was the story that you wanted to tell until you felt that you had like a strong like foundation for for this work and like that you really knew okay this is this is where I'm going this is how I want it to end up well don't work that way I wish I did I think it would be ah. much easier I think it'd be much easier I feel like it would if I planned it all out that way but I'm I'm much more um, once I get a sense of who the character is I start kind of it's almost like playing with her on the page that's why I have so many drafts one of the reasons because I she kind of evolves it's like I don't really know who she is till I put her on the page and have her go okay experiences like it's just like watching it's like when you watch a movie and you watch scenes and you don't you're not told what this person's thinking but you can kind of guess you can kind of guess a sense of who they are by what you see them do so it feels like that so I do that, then I, I'm always going back to do more research because I'll stumble on something that stops me or I realize I need even just some details about like what the kitchens look like in those days, that oh, yes. kind of thing. So there's this, it's kind of recursive, it goes back and forth um, and that goes on for a long time. And, it and I, because I'm trying to stay as close as possible somewhat anyways, to the actual facts, um, I'm, I am, you know, I, I can't make somebody uh, go elope because, because I think it would be wonderful if they did, you know, that right, because they didn't, perhaps, <laughs> right, <laughs> I can't make them marry when they didn't marry or have children and that kind of thing. I, at least I feel that way. And um, so I, I don't, I don't think, I mean, there's a little bit of sense, maybe, I feel a little confined, but not really, because I think that's good. It's real life. Right. And it 
kind of gives me parameters, but I, I don't, um, so the shaping of the novel into a story, because a person's life doesn't really resemble a story as much as we'd like it to. <laughs> no, it's just sort of like little like flashes of experience and right. how that sort of helps us evolve. Exactly. And we, and we can put it in, a, and we do put it in stories. We make stories. We tell stories about ourselves all the time. Um, it, but, you know, they take pieces that work together. So there's a lot of sifting. There's a lot of, um, you know, rev revising and going back and, and uh, editing. And my agent was a wonderful help with that. And then later when I get to the process of the, with the, working with the editor, the same thing. And uh, so my, for instance, one of the things I did in this, um, in this novel was to have chapters that were in the quote present of 1916 um, interspersed with longer, longer chapter, longer sections, which told um, Maggie's story with Emily um, dur during Emily's lifetime. So this 1916 was after Emily died and it was when Margaret was running a boarding house. She was still active, but she was in her um, early seventies, and you know, she so she wasn't, you know, at her at her peak, if you will. Right. So this, so this retrospective, but and then I, my, um, you know, I had to develop almost like a little mini story of what happened in nineteen sixteen. So it was it was fun. I mean, I really enjoyed this one, and I enjoyed. The character so much I just fell in love with Maggie myself <laughs> I feel like as someone who reads a lot of fiction and who went through grad school in kind of a research heavy field I I find myself sort of cringing at the idea of like this huge amount of research and I can imagine myself feeling like really overwhelmed by just the amount of of data that's out there so how did you sort of decide what pieces would be useful to you in telling Maggie's story and then by extension, Emily's? That's a great question. <laughs> I do not, I don't, um, I don't come from, I mean, I, have, I, I went to college and I got an MFA, but it was, the MFA was solely focused on creative writing. So I don't have that research, I did research in college, but as an undergrad, but I didn't, I don't have that graduate school research thing that I think might turn me off for it forever. Oh, I hate it. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, it's more fun for me. I'm really interested in history. And I particularly love ferreting out things that aren't commonly known, that not everybody knows. That's really fun for me. It feels like discovery. So that I wouldn't spend as much time on research if I didn't enjoy it. Because I don't know how necessary it is for a novel. It's, so it's partly my, my self-indulgence that I go so deep into it. Well, I um, think that's perfectly reasonable. <laughs> you know, if you're going to write a book that is going to engage and compel people, um, you know, I think a little like overindulgence in research, if it's something <laughs> that you love, is, is not a bad thing. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I do. I, and I think that's, that's, yeah, that's, that's a big part of the fun for me. So I find, I look for things that are interesting, um, interesting to me and hope they're interesting to readers. 
and that's kind of fit with my uh, sort of as the image of who the person is grows, those particular things fit in with it. And I don't pay attention to the stuff that bores me or, you know, it's just like, okay, I'm not really that interested in that. So I don't, I don't do much with it. Okay. Like, so then you like can kind to do of research, but guiding yourself instead of having okay. a professor looking at it saying, no, I, I can, I can get behind that. <laughs> So when did you write your first novel? Oh my goodness. <laughs> I don't even know if I remember what it is. I wanted to write since I was a kid. I mean, like by the time I was in fourth grade, that's what I wanted to do. And as many people, including my parents said, oh, that's nice, dear, but you know, you can't make a living on that, which is, they were basically right about that. But that, that, um, so anyways, I don't know. I think I was probably trying to write a novel when I was in high school. I mean, I remember one time having read, read Charles Dickens, which I think was an assignment, uh, one of his long novels. It was probably David Copperfield, actually. And, and, feel, and I don't think I enjoyed David Copperfield, but I found myself writing something sort of like it. <laughs> ah, <laughs> very, yes. I was a kid. You know, this is very typical. I mean, it was terrible. So if I don't know if you really want to call it a novel, um, but <laughs> later, yeah. But that's you know. But later, um, and I actually wrote quite a bit of poetry, um, and and then um, later after, um, as an adult, I started writing short stories. I got some published, um, and that's what I thought I was going to do. And it was through that that I got um, an agent. Because I was at a, I went to a workshop where the leader of the workshop, who was a novelist, took me aside and said, I "Think my agent would be interested in your work." Uh, and so it was on the basis of the short stories that he took me on. I've since um, been passed down to somebody else in the same agency, um, but he, but he, he, uh, and I don't think I'm not sure this could happen today. <laughs> this was back in the '80s. Um, early 80s and I I think that uh, it's it's harder to get an agent and that sort of thing maybe doesn't happen anymore but um, he asked me when he called me up and he was trying to place I don't know if he ever did place those stories but he called me up and asked if I was working at an, on an, if I had a novel and at that point I was working I was I had four children the youngest was still in diapers and I was carving out an hour here, an hour there to write. And I was working yeah, on probably not a novel quite yet then. <laughs> well, it was actually it was, but it was a romance novel. I thought oh. pretty naively, I guess, a romance is gonna be easy to write, right? You know, it's like do people fall in love? Oh, I don't and, know. You know <laughs> I know, I know. But anyways, that was my thought at the time when I was doing it. And um he said and he said, well send it to me. And he placed it again, I don't think this could happen today. He placed it in Good Housekeeping as a condensed novel. And from there, um, St. Martin's Press bought, bought it and put it out as a paperback. And they, ah, did, okay. and they did another one of my romances after that. I'm not like, wow, proud of these. <laughs> not that I'm ashamed, but they aren't what I ever really thought of myself as writing. So I had these two romances published and then nothing. I, could, I wrote some more and they didn't sell. So uh, I was thrown back on my 
Um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. I'm going off. But anyway, I, I was thrown back on like, okay, so if I, I wanted, I knew I wanted to keep writing. If it's not, if what I write isn't going to sell, I'll just write what I want. <laughs> it's like, and at that point, I was, it was very early days in the online community, kind of, it was, we were not, couldn't see each other, anything. It was all um, DOS, if you were. Oh, yes. DOS, okay. It was all just like, just online. And um, I was involved in, I mean, I sort of joined or whatever it was, a formal uh, group of people who were interested in writing. And there were people on there who were interested in Emerson and Thoreau. Um, and that, that got into discussions with them. And this was, this is weird, but anyways, and um, because I lived in the, at the time I lived in Massachusetts, in that whole area where, not too far from where Emerson and Thoreau had lived um, in Concord, Massachusetts. I didn't live in Concord, but I lived not far. And is that uh, where um, Louisa May Alcott yes, was as well? It is. it is. Nathaniel Hawthorne lived there. It's an incredible town. <laughs> it's quite amazing. But it was really Emerson that brought people there. Um, ah, okay. Reason. Yeah. So anyway, so this person asked me, um, what you know what did I know about Liddy and Emerson and who was Emerson's wife and I had never heard of her never I didn't know anything about her but I go go down to my local library and start researching it and I wasn't even thinking about writing a novel at that time but it, it grew into one eventually and that became Mr. Emerson's life so that was my first historical novel the one I feel really I feel good about that one that's, I'm sorry, that's, that's awesome. a really long love, answer for your question. <laughs> that's okay. I love sort of hearing, you know, as, as things change and as publishing changes, that the journeys that people go on to write, you know, are, are so widely varied. And we have just this, this huge well of experiences that people have had in getting their work published. And I think, there are you know, almost as many paths to becoming a writer as there are like individual people who write. And so yeah. I'm always really interested in, in hearing sort of how people, people made that journey. So I, I appreciate you taking the time to really like lay that out. Well, I think I'm showing my age here because like I said, <laughs> I don't think some of this could have happened today, but anyway. Well, and I think, you know, there are things that, that change, you know, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in, in not so good mm -hmm. ways. Um, you know, I think we have all seen through, through COVID, like the way in which technology has sort of, you know, pushed books forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done so many um, virtual events this year because of COVID that mm -hmm. I would not, you know, have ever done in person. So I think, you know, there is definitely a, a place for the sort of online communities that you're talking about, but I can see also that, you know, there's a lot to be said for doing sort of what you did and actually like, getting to know people um, you know, in, in person and making those connections. Well, I did, I, I mean, my, my books aren't, haven't been, you know, Flight of the Sparrow took off uh, totally on over not didn't take off. I'm sorry. It had a slow, very slow takeoff. I guess it was like a balloon going up or something. Um, 
because it was word of mouth. It wasn't like a big push to get mm-hmm. the word out there. But that was my second one. And that done pretty well over quite a period of time. So, so. that's actually the one that I own. Yeah. Okay. Um, I got it. I saw it listed um, in a like a list of sort of, you know, historical fiction by and about women. Yep. Um, and so that one came to my attention. And so I bought it probably, I don't know, four years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was sort of my first like introduction to, to your work. I saw Mr. Emerson's wife and then um, because I'm not a huge Emerson fan, like that was just not one that I, I gravitated toward. Well, if you um, do read but, that book, you won't end up as one either. <laughs> I'll tell you that. No, I'm, I'm sure I probably won't. <laughs> no, um, he's, he's you know, not, he's not very, I didn't, wasn't very kind to Mr. Emerson, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, you know, I think sometimes, um, there's a lot to be said for, you know, not being kind to some of these historical figures. So I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your sort of pre-release schedule um, to talk with me about Emily's House. We are recording this right before um, your book makes it out into the world. So I'm guessing, you know, there's kind of a lot going on for you and I appreciate you carving out some time um, to give my listeners a little bit of an introduction to kind of who you are and what your work is. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been wonderful. You're welcome. Before I let you go here, can you let listeners know um, if there is a good way to find you online? Yeah, I have a website. It's amybeldingbrown.net. And I also, um, you can contact me by Amy, amybeldingbrown at gmail.com. So either All right. So again, we are talking about Emily's House, which releases in the U.S. on August 3rd. And again, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay. So let's talk about new books Um, pickings were a little bit more limited than they have been um, for the past couple of weeks, but I do have a handful of things that I hope you will enjoy. So first up are a few books that you've heard us talk about before. I'm starting with one of Stacy's from our most anticipated books of September episode. This is First Love Take Two by Sajni Patel. This is a contemporary romance. Um, Patel wrote The Trouble with Hating You last year, and this is the follow-up. Brooke is looking forward to a book by Gabriella Lepore. This is This is Why We Lie, and this one looked pretty intriguing. I am definitely going to have to pick this one up. And Amber is a big fan of T.J. Klune, and so she is very excited for Under the Whispering Door, which is his latest release. All right, so let's move now into some books that you haven't heard us talk about before. Um, I'm going to start with some fantasy, 
And I am particularly excited about this one because I really enjoy Juliet Marillier's writing. So she has a new book out. This is A Song of Flight. It is Warrior Bards, book three. And this series began with The Harp of Kings. However, it is also like a spinoff of her Blackthorn and Grimm series, which begins with Dreamer's Pool. And Sarah tells me that it is important to have read Blackthorn and Grimm before you read this particular spinoff. So go back to the beginning, pick up Dreamer's Pool, read that trilogy, and then dive right into The Harp of Kings and follow it up until you get to this one, A Song of Flight, Warrior Bards, book three by Juliette Marillier. We then have She Who Rides the Storm. This is by Caitlin Sangster, and it's about four teens who get involved in this dangerous heist. And this heist involves the ancient tomb of a shape-shifting king. Hmm... Whenever I think of tombs, I think of like Egyptians, but I don't know that Egyptian kings were shapeshifters. So if you want to know more about this, you'll have to pick it up. It is She Who Rides the Storm by Caitlin Sangster. We then have Iron Widow. This is Iron Widow, book one by Ziren J. Zhao. And this is kind of a mashup of science fiction and fantasy. Um, it is set in a world where boys and girls team up at a certain point and they pilot these like flying robots. Apparently this is especially dangerous for the girls who sometimes die because of the mental stress that this act puts on them. The girls are known as concubine pilots so it has a little bit of like some dystopia a little bit of the handmaid's tale i don't know it looks like it could be kind of interesting um i wonder if like flying robots are kind of like the drones of of our world but if you want to know more this is iron widow it's iron widow book one and it's by Ziren j chow kendari blake is releasing a new book. This looks to be a standalone. This is called All These Bodies. And Blake is a really fascinating author because he's written some things that are like young adult fantasy. He's got some horror. Um, and this one looks like kind of a mix of, of the two genres of fantasy and horror. Um, it looks like it'll be pretty dark. Um, the synopsis was pretty limited, so there's not a lot that I can tell you, but I really enjoyed um, the things that I've read by Kendari Blake. So definitely pick this one up. It is All These Bodies, and again, it's by Kendari Blake. All right, let's talk about some romances here, because, like, why not? Um... Romance, general fiction, women's fiction, we have kind of a, a mixture here. Um, Better to Trust. This one really intrigued me. It's by Heather Frimmer, and it is about a woman who finds herself needing to have brain surgery. And 
the person that's best suited to do this is her sister's husband, who's a world-renowned neurosurgeon. Apparently, this causes some problems um, because of their kind of, you know, family relationship. Um, so I am interested in checking this out. It is Better to Trust, and it is by Heather Frimmer. We then have The Legacy. This is Off Campus, book five by L. Kennedy. This is a series that I know that Natalia really likes. It is um, new adult contemporary romance. I have never read it, but I, from what I understand, um, the author works hard to be you know, pretty diverse. Like You don't only see male-female pairings, although this is only... You know, I, I can't speak to this um, from my own experience because I've not read these, but I've heard good things about them from several people. And Natalia mentioned um, several months back one of the books in this series on one of our most anticipated books episodes. So this is The Legacy. It's off campus. Book five by L. Kennedy. This next book makes me very, very happy. Um, this is Love, Chai, and Other Four-Letter Words. This is Chai Masala Club, book one, by Annika Sharma. And this reminds me a little bit of, like, Farrah Heron's um, The Chai Factor and Accidentally Engaged. Um, a little bit of like Sonali Dev or Sarah Desai. So this is about an Indian woman who has been raised to follow the rules that her family lays down for her. But when it comes to marriage, dating, intimacy, this turns out to be harder than she expects. So this is Love, Chai, and Other Four-Letter Words, Chai Masala Club, book one by Annika Sharma. We then have the new Jude Devereaux and Tara Sheets book. This is An Impossible Promise, Providence Falls, book two. And I have to be honest and say that I am not current with Devereaux's um, writing at all. Not because I think she's bad, but just because I've had so many other things to read. And I just haven't picked up some of her newer stuff. I love, love, love Jude Devereaux's historicals. And I never quite transitioned to her contemporaries um, in quite the same way. But if you love her, and I know that a lot of people do, then this is a series that's probably on your radar. So it's An Impossible Promise, Providence Falls, book two by Jude Devereaux and Tara Sheets. Then we have Reeling by Sarah Stonick, and this one is about a woman who keeps seeing her grandmother's ghost. Now, right here, I wasn't sure that I, I could deal with this, ghosts, no, no. But apparently, when this happens, she decides that this is the opportunity she's been waiting for to take this fishing show. It is an all-female talk show about fishing on the road. And as she does this, you know, she learns some things about herself, about her grandmother, about the world at large. So I'm not sure if this is a book for me. Um, you know, we all know that ghosts don't inspire me a great deal. But I like the idea of 
a talk show about fishing going on the road. So this is Reeling by Sarah Stonick. And lastly, I am very excited to talk about a young adult novel in verse. This is Only When We Make It by Elizabeth Velasquez. And it is a novel that touches on some really big, important issues. We talk about things like sexual assault, food insecurity, mental illness, the gentrification of a lot of inner city neighborhoods. And there's just something very, very lyrical about verse novels. I was first introduced to them with the writing of Ellen Hopkins. And I'm always very excited to see that this format is continuing. So this one is Only When We Make It by Elizabeth Velasquez. And that, my friends, is it for me today. As I said, the selection was not quite as broad as it has been in previous weeks, but not all weeks can be chock full of books. Still, I hope that you found some things that piqued your interest. I hope all of you are staying as safe and well as possible. If you would like to leave us a rating or a review, you can do that on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that you use to access the show. Not only does it tell us what you think, but it also helps other people find us when they're looking for book-related podcasts. Um, It kind of advances us in the Google algorithm. So I will be back next Tuesday morning with an author interview and, of course, the guide to new releases. And some number of us will be back on Friday with more bookish greatness. Take care, everybody. Mm